Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Borodar Pab, Chrysler Abertawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea Twilight Show and meet Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tonight we're talking when behaviour systems go bad. What are the barriers to implementing a behaviour policy at your school? We're joined by Hannah Lloyd, Secondary School Assistant Head Teacher for Behaviour and Safeguarding. We're going to be talking frustrations and we're going to be talking hopefully how to solve them in getting behaviour right at your school. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boradar Pab, Kroisoyabatawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show. Uh, we meet Nathan Ginn here on Teachers Talk Radio. As I said in the introduction there, we're talking about the barriers to implementing a behaviour policy at your school. So we're not talking about, you know, the ins and outs necessarily of good behaviour um, rules, I guess, but we're going to be talking about how, once you have those rules, how you make sure they're uh, implemented effectively across the school, consistently across the school. Lots of words like that I think we're going to hear as we go through. Now, we're also joined by Hannah Lloyd, um, who's a secondary school assistant head teacher for behaviour and safeguarding. Now, Hannah, can you hear me? I can indeed, Nathan. Lovely stuff. And you're coming through clear there, just possibly a little bit louder if you can to the microphone, a little bit closer. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that is brilliant. Now, um, you know, as we always get started on on a lot of our episodes of Teachers Talk Radio, people like to know a little bit about who they're listening to. So why don't, for the listeners, you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you currently do? Uh, So I am currently an assistant head teacher, uh, responsible behaviour and safeguarding in a mainstream secondary academy. Uh, part of a multi-academy trust um, and we are currently uh, requires improvement um, and part of my role is ensuring that behaviour is good enough for us to achieve that good next time the Ofsted roll around. Fantastic and uh, weirdly and you know you can answer this as as, as, um, you know um, evasively as you you like but when people you've given us quite a lot of information there already but when people talk about behavior they also like to know like a little bit of the context for the 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 setting of the school um so you know um you know you don't have to go into too much detail but are you know are you a school that people would consider would struggle with behavior or are you you know an affluent leafy suburb somewhere um so we're um we're in a county that has a, a big mix um, in terms of we have grammar schools um, and then we have, a, I'm not a big fan of the word, but we would classify, I guess, as a comprehensive school. Um, so for us, we quite often, um, the, the, the biggest struggle for us in terms of our context is that the students kind of see us as the backup school um, if they didn't get into the grammar school and, and lots of the parents view it that way as well. Um, and in terms of where we are, the county probably is considered to be slightly more affluent. But in terms of where we're based, we're in, in more of a deprived area of that county. Um, so we have significantly higher proportion of, of free school meals and pupil premium and that kind of thing. 
Oh, that you know, brilliant. Thank you. You know, I won't delve too much. I know, like you know, there there are things at schools that we keep in schools, but I think people always kind of like to uh, have an understanding of where they're they're coming from. The other thing that people always like to to ask about whenever I talk to people about um, behaviour of any sort is we start going down these kind of uh, you know lines of. kind of the the headline grabbing things so if it's okay with you you know i want to uh i guess they're hot topic words maybe i want to throw some at you and just see where you sit just so as we're going through the conversation people have that kind of better uh maybe better understanding about where you're coming from as well so some of these are quite extreme and you know obviously but for instance um, where do you stand on exclusions on things like no more exclusions i i would heavily disagree with no more exclusions um, uh, I think if they are done properly, then exclusions and suspensions absolutely serve a purpose. Um, and the, the biggest purpose for me would be if you are suspending somebody because it keeps everybody else safe. Um, I think it, it absolutely needs to be a last resort. There needs to be every other possible intervention that your school can offer um, needs to be have been looked at. Um, for me, particularly, if you're looking at a permanent exclusion, have you tried to manage move somewhere else? Are there alternative provisions that would be appropriate for that child um, that, that you can use uh, to avoid that permanent exclusion um, in terms of that, that being the best thing for the child? Um, equally, you know, fixed term exclusions, obviously, as they used to be known, suspensions do also serve a purpose. There are times when actually that a student needs to be removed from the school for the safety of others and for you to have time to put interventions in place. Um, I think the key thing with with suspensions is that actually, and I I attended some training recently with Brown Jacobson about this, about the fact that the the reintegration meeting is key to these being successful and not you not ending up with a lot of repeat offenders. Um, And the key part of that is making sure that interventions are put in place. So um, an example, is that uh, we had a child, unfortunately, who had to be suspended um, for assaulting another pupil. Um, Now, it wasn't the kind of assault that would end up with a permanent exclusion, um, but we knew straight away that 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 student was going to need more intervention. Um, And before, I mean, before the meeting had even happened, I'd already contacted the Youth Offending Service and made sure they could get um, some support in for that child in terms of changing the way those behaviours had happened. Um, and I think that's really, if you're going to exclude, that's the key part that needs to happen. You have to make sure that those interventions are in place so you don't end up repeatedly suspending students for the same thing. Fantastic. And you, you know, I was starting off, there are so many things there that I want to unpick a little bit later on. I don't want people listening to think, oh, you know, we're letting that kind of get through because we will get on to, but I think it's really good for us just to get kind of, so exclusions, I'd say like I, for me, that feels like, you know, you're pretty, you know, in the middle there, this is what most schools are doing. Now, here's another word for you. I'm not hundred percent sure I even know what this means, but I hear it thrown around a lot. Warm strict. So warm. Where do you stand on that? Um, warm strict for me is probably kind of how I might describe my approach to um, behaviour. In terms of what it means to me and how I would interpret that, it's about having high expectations. um, It's about, but also showing that we care. And part of the reason you have those high expectations is because you want the best for those students. Um, If you look at somewhere like the Michaela School, um, which is where I think really this kind of idea of warm strict has come from, their students are incredibly happy. They are not unhappy students to, to be in that strict atmosphere. And, it, and, and it's not because, it's because then they're, they're not strict in terms of the authoritarian personality, they're strict in terms of 
high expectations um, and they are expected to meet those expectations. So it's something certainly um, that, I, as I say, I kind of would explain, describe my approach as. Um, we I've covered this in, in assemblies and I talk to the students about this idea of warm strict um, and, and kind of the fact that we care about you and that that's why we're, we're doing this. We also have conversations in detention that reiterate that same message as well. Um, and, it, and the way we communicate that to our students is in, alongside the rules we might have in our behaviour policy. Um, we also make sure that it's really clear in our pastoral policy um, and, and for the students there that, um, that, that we, as I say, if we care. And we, so we have a poster, for example, that says, um, do, you know, we believe in you, we trust in you, you are listened to, you are cared for, you are important, you belong and you will succeed. Um, and that's alongside any posters that we might have in terms of what we expect from students behaviour wise. Um, when I talked students through this, when I first introduced it, I did explain to them that certain elements of this mean different things to them and they need to understand that. So for example, you are listened to is, is one that I quite often get in a conflict with students about. And I had to explain to them, you are listened to doesn't mean we agree with you necessarily. It means we will listen to you and we will talk you through a process and we will help you to understand where your behavior has gone wrong. Uh, but, and that's for me, that's the warm side of things. So the strict is the having the high expectations, but the warm is the educating to make sure students can meet those high expectations. Fantastic. Again, you know, I'm very clear on where you stand, but I'm going to throw a potential spanner in your works now because I'll, I'll be really interested in how you answer this because I, you know, we are full of false dichotomies in education. So I'm going to throw at you then the what people would see as the opposite to Michaela of trauma-informed practices or trauma-informed approaches where, where would you sort of stand with that one i think um my my issue with trauma-informed practices is actually the phrase has been used so much that it's not really fully understood what it means and um, i would say even before that phrase has come along good pastoral teams have been doing things with trauma for a very long time um before you know when I first came into teaching and started working in pastoral we were looking at adverse childhood experiences um, and all of that kind of sat within a similar context to trauma-informed I think if you're going to do something along the lines of trauma-informed the key thing is that you can't add to the cognitive load of the teachers you can't have teachers needing to know every single thing about every single child and how to deal with each of those children because it was it, it will be too much um, I think it's important for pastoral teams to know. And I think regardless of whether you consider yourself a trauma-informed school, your pastoral teams need to know their children. They absolutely need to know the students that are in um, their year groups, in their houses, however you're set up. The thing teachers need to know is for certain students, what are the de-escalation strategies? So are there particular behaviours or conversations you might have that will trigger students? And are there particular strategies to de-escalate students rather than you needing to know all of the background um, behind that? And, and that needs to be for fewer students so as to not add to the extra things that teachers already have to think about when they're... Fantastic. And this one you've already mentioned, so I'm going to throw another one at you. Um, and, and we'll unpick these more as we go through and everything. But, you know, I think it is great. And you've been so clear and honest with us. It's kind of like, like, I feel I really am getting an understanding of how, you know, how it's going to work and where we get on with these things. So this one you've kind of mentioned already, um, restorative practice or, or restorative approaches. So this, um, 
I, this is for me I have I kind of have an issue with the concept of restorative um practice in that I don't believe it's done properly um so my actual background before um I was a teacher my background's in psychology um, and in criminal behavior which is obviously where the idea of restorative kind of practice and restorative justice came from my biggest issue with it is in traditional restorative justice in the prison system both parties need to agree to it for it to be successful and the issue you have in the school is actually the students aren't given an option as to whether they agree um, and what happens then is it just can if it's not done properly it can become further conflict for the student um, and the child and if the teacher's not trained properly the other issue you have is that actually they are not they, they some I've, and I've seen it where staff come down and it's another excuse to tell the child what was wrong with their behavior because they've not been trained properly in how to do restorative justice um, and restorative practice now it definitely plays a role I went to some training with Paul Carlisle um, who explained and this statistic sits with me constantly in terms of the emotional maturity of our children it explained that we learn a lot of our emotional currency from adults we can't learn it from other children when we're when we're growing up um, but now the average 16 year old the amount of adult conversations they have had to learn that emotional um, reflection and that ability to restore relationships we would have had by the time we were seven um, so there is a huge need to have those conversations. What I don't think it has to be is with the teacher. Um, so one of the things that we've looked at in our school in particular is that actually the teachers don't come down. I've done proper training with the pastoral teams and we are the ones who run detentions anyway. So after school, um, we will have individual conversations and it's more reflective rather than restorative. So it's about the students still reflecting on their behaviour that had led them to being in detention. Um, however, the option is there for staff if they wish to come down because they do feel like a behaviour could potentially impact a future lesson. Um, they are welcome to come down and we will support them with having a restorative conversation, which is also how that should be done properly. There should be a third person there that is supporting that rather than it just being between the teacher and the student. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm really interested in that. I've got, I have to make a note to come back to that. I've got, you know, I am primary, historically primary is is my background, where um, teachers would, would be doing their own detentions, really. There's no, I don't, I don't know many primary schools who have kind of a centralised detention system. We're just too small and it tends to be kind of kept behind five minutes or, well, as my son says, actually, he's, he's, I, I say to him every day, did you have to do minutes today at break time? Did you have to stay in a little bit? Um, whereas the secondary school model, I see lots of different things and these, these kind of ideas of using central so i, I want to come back to that um definitely i'm going to make a note um because i think that's something that schools maybe do it when they're in their implementation get wrong and it sounds like you've got a really kind of clear um idea about what's going on there now here's another one for you because we're swinging back and forth between these kind of behavior words that get thrown out there zero tolerance what's your kind of reaction to that are you a zero tolerance person do you think that's a good idea um, I'm not a zero tolerance person. I My issue with zero tolerance is that it leaves you no room for the context of the situation, but it also leaves you no room to educate the child. If you are zero tolerance, um, and I'm talking even on extreme things, you know, racism, violence, drugs, etc. If you are zero tolerance, you will not resolve anything for that child. That child will potentially be permanently excluded from your school they'll either go to another school or they'll go to an alternative provision and they haven't actually had anyone work with them to look at what those behaviors were um i think 
we need to remember that behaviour is learned. It is not inherent. Children don't just grow up knowing how to behave um, and what to say that is is or isn't appropriate. Um, and part of our roles as school is to, to help them learn that. It's not just about academic and about curriculum, but it's about behaviour as part of your curriculum as well. Um, so I'm not a big believer in zero tolerance. There are very few things I think I could name that would even make me think, yes, that's a zero tolerance situation, because in a first instance, you have a responsibility, in my opinion, to educate that child to make sure that behaviour doesn't occur again. Now, if it occurs after that, that's different. You need to deal with it in a different way because you've already done the education and the behaviour has continued, um, but I certainly wouldn't believe in Okay, now we've batted around some of those, you know, uh, you know, key buzz buzzwords. That's the thing that they call them, isn't it? Buzzwords when we talk about behaviour, and they've been some really interesting. I feel like a really good understanding of where where we are going and and the kind of school we'll be discussing and and, and all of those things. But in a kind of um, you know, in a, in a short way, if if you had to describe your approach to behaviour, you know, give it a tagline. How would you describe it then? Um, so I already mentioned this, the, you, you know, you mentioned the warm strict and I'd say that probably does describe um, my approach is very black and white. I think if you leave grey areas, then your system can potentially fall down because it becomes a negotiation. Um, and I think there are other key approaches, key things in terms of my approach, which is open communication with parents. Parents have to be heavily involved in supporting you with behaviour. Um, education has to be part of a curriculum. It is learned. You need to teach children what good educa uh, good behaviour looks like. And also a massive part of my approach is rewards. Um, and when we talk about behaviour policies, we quite often forget that. So um, it, there needs to be lots of rewards for students who are... Fantastic. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you one more question sort of for this small kind of our introductory se uh, section of the show, just to, for us to, you know, I feel I know you very well now. I feel, I feel that we, 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 I, I, we have a good understanding of, of, of your um, approaches to behaviour and, and how you see it. And actually there've been these real nuggets that I want to unpick in, in the next section, but I'm going to read you a quote. And, and this is from um, the Education Endowment Fund, Improving Behaviour in Schools Guidance Report. It's got a quote in there um kind of um it's uh, kenneth john freeman he's paraphrasing hellenic perceptions of the youth in um around 600 to 300 bc and he says uh, children began to be the tyrants not the slaves of their households they no longer rose from their seats when an elder entered the room they they contradicted their parents they chatted before company gobbled up dainties at the tables and committed various offences against Hellenic tastes, such as crossing their legs. They tyrannised over the pedagogi uh, and schoolmasters. Um, now that's from uh, nearly 3,000 years ago. Um, do you think behaviour is getting worse, either post-pandemic or just generally in um, the 21st century? I think my response to this is going to be quite controversial based on the conversations I have with teachers, but I'm going to say no. Um, I think behaviour is different to how it was. I don't think it's got worse. I think the behaviours we see are, are different for, from what people are used to, and particularly if you've been in teaching for a very long time. Um, and I think that's just happened because society has changed the way that it views education and the way that schools work. Um, I think we've changed the way in terms of how the notion of respect works. Um, I am not a believer that teachers should automatically be respected. I'm a believer that everyone should automatically be respected unless they give you a reason not to. Um, 
And so I think a lot of the behaviours we see now are just different to, to even if I look back to when I first started teaching. Um, low level behaviour has always been there, the, the chatting in the classroom, etc. I wouldn't say that's got any worse, that, that has always been there. Um, I would say potentially students' attitudes towards teachers has got worse or can, and maybe that's more post-pandemic. Um, but again, I think if you have an open communication with parents, then you will find a lot of that comes from the parents' experiences of school um, and you can do a lot to fix that. Um, but I think for me, overall, I, I think behaviour is different. It hasn't necessarily got worse. Um, and with the right policy, regardless of what those behaviours look like, I think it can be, it can be handled well enough. Um, and the key thing for me is that those different behaviours, lots of them have happened, like I say, partly because um, we need that communication with parents, but also, as I mentioned before, just a lack of actually teaching students what good behaviour looks like. Um, and, and if we don't do that and we just punish them for, for when it's bad, then we the, the things aren't going to improve. They will just get worse because they're not actually learning what it's supposed to look like. I, I agree. I agree entirely about that, particularly around, you know, the I, I would say my um, my feelings on, on when people talk about behavior in schools and maybe I myself went to a, a terrible school, but schools in the 80s and, and early 90s when, you know, when I was there um, were not some kind of wonderland that we all remember of, you know, things being uh, polite and quiet corridors and things, you know, a comprehensive comprehensive education that I had was a pretty tough going and some pretty you know tough behaviors going on there uh, you know I, I, I really do I, I reflected that as well though but there is maybe a change I think there maybe is yeah um, things that we're doing I don't know if it's a focus maybe that, that um, schools are paying more attention to it as you know when we talk about behaviors for learning and its impact on learning that stuff outside the classroom can impact in the classroom um i don't know maybe it's just you know we, we're going to have this conversation in 30 years time with with two new teachers joining saying hey what you know why haven't these uh, uh these behaviors changed over time so i think it is a really interesting one but the, the key thing and hopefully where we, where we transition now we'll have a, a, a quick break and then we'll transition is about that implementation because one of the things that I notice and I'll be interesting to get your your opinion on this just before we um, break quickly for some, some adverts is um, I tend to read when I read about behavior I read about having good rules or I read about very um, kind of blanket statements or I hear advice that's um, kind of very one-off like you need to build relationships and then I don't hear about the implementation side of it and there's very little that I've read about how to go from a school that is not having good behavior um, to a school that is um, you know working well and behavior is good beyond people saying oh well you know they, they need to be wearing uniform you say okay well how do you get from point a to point b is that well no they need to be wearing uniform is there much that you've come across where you see about how to implement rather than sort of behavior rules have you come across much sort of research or reading on that no i would completely agree with you um i think a lot of the the behavior things that i read um are absolutely they're absolutely focused on kind of those broad stroke suggestions that don't like you say they don't really do anything they need to have good uniform um, they need to be listening to the teacher they need to not be focused on anything else other than the teacher and um, they need to get on with their work that that's all fantastic we know they need to do those things but yes yeah, seeing what it looks like and how to do that um and it's it's 
for me, one of the biggest things that's missing from teacher training um, is really those strategies for how you actually make that happen in a classroom. Um, and yes, there is only so much theory you can do behind that in terms of your training. You need to get into a classroom and experience it. Um, but, but it definitely needs to be, th those strategies do need to happen. I think things are heading that way. Um, Tom Bennett is very good at, at describing kind of strategies for how this looks in the classroom. Robin Launder as well um, looks a lot at proactive strategies for managing um, behaviour. So there are they are out there, but I just think they're not as commonly talked about as they need to be. Um, and certainly, as I said and mentioned in the teacher training, it's a, it's a big blank spot. Fantastic. Now, we're going to continue this conversation when we come back, just after some important messages. And if you are listening live in the studio, don't forget, you can message us in through the Podbean app. You can, of course, tweet us as well um, at TT Radio 2022. In fact, there were a lot of comments when I asked earlier in the week about what could go wrong with behaviour systems. And, and so we'll, we'll go through some of those as well. So you might hear your tweets read out um, as well if you've commented on that. But we will see you just the other side of these important messages to talk about implementing behaviour systems. <laughs> This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boradar Paub, Kroisoi Avatawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn, here on Teachers Talk Radio. Now we are talking tonight about when behaviour systems go bad and what are the barriers to implementing a behaviour policy at your school. We're joined by Hannah Lloyd, a secondary school assistant head teacher for behaviour and safeguarding. Um, Hannah, welcome back. Thank you, Nathan. Lovely stuff. Now, um, before, if, you, if you're only just joining us, before the break, we, we talked a little bit kind of about Hannah's approaches. We, we threw around some of those buzzwords about kind of different approaches people might have to behaviour um, and, and different systems. Now, one of the things I wanted before we really get into the nitty gritty of how you get your chosen system to work, Hannah, is um, that in the 
education endowment fund improving behavior um, schools guidance that we I talked about a little bit earlier Sir Kevin Collins chief executive says there is a clear need for a school to have consistent and clear behavior policies that promote positive behavior in lessons so kind of my first question to get us off the bat really is how do you think schools should go about choosing those rules to enforce um, because different schools might choose different things I guess um, I think schools do choose different things. I think fundamentally, if you really drill down to it, there's pro- there probably are a lot of similarities. Um, I think the key thing to, to choose in the rules for you is you need to look at what is your vision for the school, what's your aim for the school, and what are the values that, that you want to promote. Um, and then alongside that, what is the context of your school? So what is going to work for your students um, that that may not work elsewhere. I mentioned, you know, I'm in a county where where we work, uh, work alongside lots of grammar schools. Um, for us, that splits our context and it makes a big difference. So we need to look at the students who are attending our school. Firstly, their attitude towards education, um, and therefore potentially the rules, um, and uh, also the, the students who who didn't apply to the grammar school. Did, you know, and in terms of, they quite often they feel that's because they they can't get in and they, they lack an ambition um and so i think your your rules you need to as i say to do all of those things and you need to decide what the priorities are for you and your school um ollie lovell did a fantastic interview with uh, catherine verbal singh where she talks about this that actually she's never said everyone should run the michaela school um and, and sorry run their schools the way the Ms. michaela school runs because that's how she's chosen her vision for the her context and the values that that matter and and that has to be individualized for for schools um i think fundamentally the rules you need to choose are based on what do you want your students to look like when they leave your school as human beings how do you want them to respond to the outside world and therefore what kind of rules should you expect them to meet that are also going to be favorable in society so for example punctuality really key you need to be on time in a workplace you need to be on time in college university etc so that has to be a key part of your behavior policy um for us we then looked at the fact that actually it's when you might turn up to work on time but if you're not prepared for work then that's no use so preparation is really key understanding that you need to know what you what lessons you've got that day are you prepared for those lessons have you completed your homework um, all of the preparation for learning have you got all of your equipment um, and then you've got things like how do you want your students to interact with other people so for us is a big part in terms of our values um, in terms of kindness and integrity and then we one of our values as well is community um, and so for us in terms of the school and how that looks our context that's about making sure that our students learn to respect others and part of that is learning when they should be working independently, when they should be working with others and how to do that appropriately. Um, And then I think the other thing all schools would agree is they want their students to be ambitious. They want everyone to leave school knowing that they could achieve whatever they want to achieve. Um, And so you need to base your rules around what you want your students to look like when they are leaving and going out to their next steps. And so, you know, I think we have, you know, in, in a school's approach, in my imaginary school that you are helping helping me with um, at the moment, we have, you know, I have, we've talked about kind of vision and values. We know what our, our, our behaviour, 
vision is. You know, I know whether I'm going to be warm strict or I'm going to, you know, do this. I know, I know where I land. Um, I've I've worked out what rules I want for my context. And now this is the bit that that, that really interests me because I think this is the bit where most teachers um, probably find friction with their school organisation or with um, maybe middle leaders or, or senior leaders is that they are aware of the rules or the rules are there, people are clear on them, those. It's how they get them to work. And one of the things that the, the EEF, uh, you know, um, key piece of advice was about consistency is key. And they talk about, um, you know, consistency and coherence at a whole school level are paramount. Whole school uh, changes usually take longer to embed than individually tailored or single classroom approaches. And they also say behavior programs are more likely to have an impact on attainment if out, um, on attainment outcomes if it, they're implemented at a whole school level. So if we're talking about consistency then, and I've got those rules, how do I go about getting that, that consistency of behavioral, behavior policy implementation across my school? I think I think without a doubt it is the hardest part of bringing in any behaviour policy is that consistency. Um, the the most difficult thing with it is that how you interpret something is going to be different to how somebody else interprets. So, for example, if you say that you've got a paired discussion that needs to be a low talk activity, what you might consider low talk volume, somebody else might say is actually quite loud. Um, so that is one of the biggest issues. I think there are a couple of things that, that can support. The first is your behaviour policy in a school has to be really clear and has to be really easy to use. So whatever systems you set up in terms of consequences for, for misbehaviour need to be really easy for staff to use. The easier that is, the more likely they are to consistently use them. Um, and then I think also you have to work with staff. You cannot implement a policy and then just say, that's how it is, that's the process and move on. You have to regularly review staff, um, talk with staff, get feedback from staff on how things are working out for them and use the data to identify that as well. Um, I think it's also really key that staff have consistent uh, and, and sorry, persistent CPD on how to how to manage those behaviours, how to make sure um, that they are using the policy reminders about elements of the policy, how to log certain things. Um, and I've mentioned the data, but using that as well, review, review teachers um, and students, in fact, but review teachers, who's giving the most logs, who's, lo who's got lower logs um, and why? Why is that? But don't assume that the high logs mean that, that teacher is struggling with behaviour and don't assume that the low logs mean that, that teacher has got behaviour absolutely cracked because that's not the case all, all of the time. So you need to identify those staff and then actually you need to work with those staff drop in we use incremental coaching at my school and um, so regular drop-ins um to to develop staff uh, so they're very very much an open door policy so you can go in you know if i identify a member of staff has used a lot of logs with a particular class um, then I'll go in and have a look and actually I might spend five minutes in that room and they might give out three logs but I go mm, all of those things were deserved they are consistently using that policy um, for me I'd actually probably be more concerned about the staff who aren't using as many logs um, and I'd want to go and check that they're not overlooking things that are, are high expectations um, uh, so I think it is it is without a doubt the hardest thing the, the key thing needs to be an easy to use policy 
and that you have staff buy-in. You need to explain to staff why these are the rules, why these are the high expectations, why this is what we want from our students. If you explain that to staff, most of the time they will understand and they want to get on board with making sure they've got the best um, for their students. But I do agree, whole school it is much longer to embed, um, particularly if you've got a school that, that has a history. Um, so our particular school in the last five years um, has had several different head teachers um, lots of different leadership. Luckily, it's been consistent for the last couple of years. Um, but that's meant for those staff, there's a lot of inconsistency because actually they've had to learn a different process every time there's a different new head teacher. Um, so for us, we've had a real focus on the CPD and what our behaviour policy looks like and what are the strategies you can do to use that and really stripping back where the behaviour policy was at to make it as simple as possible to follow. And there's something that I'm trying to pin down in my head because uh, like there is something so engaging about what you're talking about there. It sounds to me like I'm, I'm really clear and I'm sure some of our listeners would be like um, if someone was describing this way of improving teaching and learning. You know, I've heard like, you know, uh, having drop ins, but it sounds like you're describing a, a similar approach um, ar around implementing sort of behavior strategies as well. Now, so it, this would be my question for you based based on that. I'd be interesting to hear if you do see them as entirely separate. Um, in, in lots of places I work in, behaviour and teaching and learning, or there isn't a pastoral side, if that makes sense. It, it is teaching and learning and then they're kind of all as one. Do you think um, it's harder <clears throat> to get consistent behaviour implementation rather than, say, a teaching and learning strategy? Or, or, or are, we t are you talking then about the same thing if I wanted if, if uh, teaching and learning lead wanted to implement uh, better questioning you'd be using the same approach if you wanted to implement better behavior I think the approach can be the same um, I think the approach to implementing teaching and learning strategies and the way you would talk to staff about that and monitor that can be exactly the same way you would implement a behavior policy and behavior strategies I do think however it is far more difficult to get the consistency with the staff using those strategies. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, um, firstly, the research is lacking in terms of all of these strategies and how they work. You know, we've talked about the fact that the actual implementation, there's not as much research or is certainly not talked about as much um, as just the, the concept of behaviour. Um, but I think also you've, you've got the issue that actually staff sometimes when you try a strategy they feel silly or they don't want to do it because it's not comfortable for them and teaching and learning strategies don't give that same feeling to staff if you if you did questioning for example you're probably going to provide staff with five different strategies and none of which will make them feel ridiculous for doing they will all make absolutely perfect sense um cold calling absolutely makes perfect sense using whiteboards makes perfect sense you can explain it if I say to a member of staff, I want you to actively look around the room, crane your neck, be really proactive, look for those issues. It feels like you are being a caricature of yourself. And so staff can sometimes find that quite uncomfortable. And also the other issue you have is that staff want to manage behaviour and quite understandably manage behaviour in a way that works for them. So I think with as opposed to teaching and learning where you're providing the strategies and you're kind of expecting to see them, with behaviour, you need the, the strategies and the behaviour policy are kind of separate. The behaviour policy needs to run in that. These are the consequences. That's how it needs to happen. How you manage that behaviour, um, there needs to be various strategies and staff need to use the ones that work best for them.
no, I, you know, I'm, I, as I say, I'm really intrigued and I'm really interested in, you know, in, in this nuance of kind of how you get it and how you approach it. Because as you've said as well, you know, I think this is something that maybe gets overlooked. Maybe uh, people, you know, jump straight in with, oh, you know, we're going to do this. This is going to be, our, here are our new rules and we're, we're going to enforce them and we're going to enforce them. And then, and then that's where it stops. And so these little bits are kind of this nuance around it, I find, you know, really helpful. Now, what, one of the bits I want to jump to is um, from an Ofsted report, 2014 this was. So fair, you know, could be considered old as far as education goes, not old uh, as far as I am, hope, you know, well, I'm getting into my age again there but um so it was below the radar Ofsted report and it was a survey and it, it revealed the following over half of teachers surveyed said that their school's policy on behavior was helpful so that means half half not um only around a third said that it was applied consistently across the school in some instances hard-working teachers have their efforts to maintain discipline undermined by the inconsistent approach of other teaching staff to behavior um, too often this inconsistency is not tackled by senior leaders now when we put out the tweets kind of running up it was you know and I have been a senior leader in my time as well it was often teachers complaining about senior leaders um, but aside from that what are some of the common things you've heard about where a behavior system or the implementation of a behavior policy um, can go wrong or does go wrong um, I think I, I, senior leadership I would definitely come back to because that that is a big issue if, it, if it's not supportive or if it's too much. Um, but I think that some of the issues that I've come across, if a system is too complicated, um, so one of the schools that I've worked in previously when I very first started there and we actually overhauled the behaviour policy in the end, when I first started there, there was a log for every single minute behaviour that could possibly happen. And the issue with that is that if I want to log a student for talking, I have to scroll through 55 different other behaviours to find the one that I want to log. Now, actually, I don't want to log that child because it's a lot of effort on my part. Um, so when systems are too complicated, then it, it causes staff to disengage with it um, and not feel as supported, therefore, because nothing's happening, because the logs aren't being put on. Therefore, the students aren't identified as having behaviour issues and the support isn't put in place. I think also one of the key things that is missing quite often from behaviour policies um, is a, we've talked about behaviour lining up with teaching and learning, but actually behaviour lining up with uh, special educational needs as well and how to work your behaviour policy alongside students who have SEN. And that is really important in terms of managing those students and making sure that support is there as well. Um, and I think that if that doesn't work properly, then that's something that can definitely go wrong. Um, now I, I'm going to list off, and there, there are quite a few of these. These are from um, Tom Bennett. We've, you know, we've mentioned already um, Tom Bennett's work, but this is from an independent review he did of behaviour in schools for the DfE, um, and he listed um, some of the challenges that uh, frequently impede improvement. Was his his wording of it? But I'm just going to run through the whole list, and then I'm going to see if there's any that we um, pick out as things that are often get overlooked in that implementation phase because some of these people will be nodding along to and some of them I think made well I think made me think about actually did I consider this or do I consider this so of course there's um, first of all lack of clarity and vision or poor communication of that vision to the staff um, a lack of sufficient in-school classroom management skills poorly calibrated or low expectations um, inadequate 
orientation for new staff or students, um, staff overburdened by workload and therefore unable to direct behaviour effectively, um, unsuitably skilled staff in charge of pivotal behaviour roles, um, remote, unavailable or over-occupied leadership, inconsistency between staff and departments. Now, are there any of those that jump out to you as something that, that maybe often gets overlooked or something that you would be saying, this would be a big thing I wanted to crack because this will have the biggest impact on how a behaviour policy is implemented? Oh, and I think we just lost you there, Hannah. I think you've just muted yourself. I have muted you still myself. With us? Apologies. Yeah, sorry. Go on. That's <laughs> um, okay. So there's two for me that jump out. The The first is the lack of sufficient in-school uh, classroom management. Um, I've kind of touched on this already, but I do think if you're going to implement a behaviour policy, you have to give staff the strategies in order to do that. You can't just say that these are the rules and this is what we expect. How are you expecting them to manage those situations and ideally what you want is it to be proactive so behavior policies are very reactive so they react to the behavior itself what is better is to teach your staff proactive strategies for stopping the behavior before it happens um, and i've talked about the fact that actually that that isn't i mean if you're in a school and you're implementing a new policy that needs to be key you need to teach your staff that but also way back in teacher training we need to be teaching our trainees and our ECTs those strategies for being proactive um, and managing that classroom behaviour with those students. We need to anticipate the issues um, and see, see them happening. And it's a hard skill to learn, um, you'll know yourself, to, to be able to watch an entire class, particularly once you're helping an individual, is really difficult. Um, but actually one of the things I've been working with my staff on is this idea that when you're helping somebody, just look up look up like something has happened remind students you are watching them and students do respond to that they know when they're being watched um, and be really proactive with that if students are getting on with some work and you you're you're pausing for a moment do it at the back of the classroom because you will see more from the back of the classroom it's proactive keep your eyes out for anything that could be happening uh, and robin launder i mentioned earlier um also might be known to some people behavior buddy he does a lot of work on these ideas of proactive strategies so you are not just constantly reacting and that's where it can look like schools have poor behavior if you are constantly reacting you're going to have the higher levels of behavior being recorded um, you're going to ha have to deal with parents a lot more you're going to have higher levels of detentions and i'm not saying there isn't a place for those obviously if behavior happens you need to deal with that um, but though that in school classroom management is really really important and as part of that as well is routines there needs to be clear, consistent routines that all staff do. And I don't think you can narrow that too much. So I'm not a fan, I've worked in schools where this happens. You cannot have a routine for every single part of the lesson. It's too restrictive. What you can do, however, is have a routine for entry to the lesson and a routine for exiting the lesson. And students therefore know, no matter what is going on in that room, this is how I'm going to enter that room and this is how I'm going to exit that room. And if you have those routines, students know what to expect. And it also releases their cognitive load of having to think about how does this teacher treat me? What do I need to think about? How do I need to behave as this particular member of staff? Because actually they know what it's going to start out like. Um, I think the other one is the lack of skills in terms of pastoral leadership. Um, it, it is not 
there is an instinct. I do think people who go into pastoral leadership um, do it for the right reasons. They have a passion and there is certainly uh, an instinct you can have for managing behaviour and having those relationships with students and with parents and with staff. However, training has to happen. Uh, and I mentioned, you know, the context of my school and, and the different leadership. I've worked really hard with my heads of year and we've got heads of key stage as well to make sure that they are confident in handling those processes um, handling the monitoring of the behaviour, handling students, making sure they know what to do in certain situations, how they would implement certain um, aspects of the behaviour policy at a higher level than you would expect a teacher to, to implement and making sure that they know that support is there. So a key thing for me, any incident that happens in the school, the very final decision just gets run past me. Now that's not about the fact that I don't trust the staff, but I am one of the few people that has oversight of all of the year groups. And I have to check for that consistency that whatever we choose for a year 11, who was defiant is the same thing as I do for a year seven, who was defiant. And we need to make sure that's happening. Um, and so don't assume when you appoint somebody as a head of year, or, or even as an assistant head teacher, that they know everything. It is a constant learning curve and put training in place. And if you don't have the training yourself, if you don't have that expertise, go out and find it and send your staff on those training courses and get them to then feedback to, to the rest of the staff and share that good practice. No, yeah, you know, as I reflect now on sort of the the different levels of training, and I know you've already mentioned sort of the, the you know, early career um teacher sort of training and support that would be in there but I try to think now and I imagine there are probably um, middle leaders you know across up and down the country um, who, who you possibly get a promotion and then you're in role doing the role and and there isn't necessarily that same change because there are there are some things that are are done differently I guess and, and and schools really need to consider that if you are going to promote a new um, head of year or a new assistant head the kind of training that goes into supporting them with new elements of their role that they maybe haven't uh, done before or maybe aren't as confident in. Yeah I completely agree um, I think they, they and they need to more important than they need to know the supports there so you can know that it's okay to say I don't know how to do this I haven't come across this before um, and knowing that you can go to a senior leader or another member of staff and say oh have you dealt with this before go to another head of year who's been doing it for a few years have you dealt with a similar situation that is really key because that quite often that's where actually the training comes in it might not be that you've got an hour to sit down with all of your staff to do that particularly you know I'm conscious of workload with my staff I don't want to add lots and lots of meetings but knowing that they can come to me, they can ask, they can check, they can speak to the heads of key stage who've also had training. Having that open support network um, is really, really important, I think, in terms of making sure that that, that happens for staff um, and that they feel supported in that training. And, and bear in mind as well that they also might have ideas. They might want to change things, particularly if you've hired externally. They're going to come in with fresh eyes. They're going to have different ideas about how things could look and listen to that. Don't think that you know it all um, as a leader because we definitely don't. So make sure that you're listening to those staff and see what they've picked up um, as a middle leader. What have they noticed about the way that you're 
Um, now, I want to throw over to, uh, you know, something that we maybe haven't touched on as much when talk talking about implementing behavior systems, but there were two common themes from from Twitter when people were, were talking to us about this um, before the show. And it was um, staff saying that, that you know, ha staff having time to deal with the administrative tasks around behavior themselves. So that is, you know, about knowing that, um, you know, if, if I challenge that child, I may well have, you know, five to 10 minutes of extra typing up at the end of the day and a phone call on top of that. And then I would tie this to the same thing, which would be SLT or on call or whatever the system is in, in that school, maybe not having enough time to or, or rushing poop back into class because they they need to be somewhere else and so this need this this behavior incident needs to be over and so you know staff possibly not feeling backed by that that children have been rushed back in so my question is really and I, I you know I pondered this myself about how long a behavior incident takes to deal with how much staff time you know is taken up by a, a child uh, being disrespectful to a mem another member of staff if you told it all up all of the conversations all of the phone calls all of the bits so do you think um, behavior systems themselves get enough time is that something we maybe need to look at when we're implementing and saying actually I you know I need more people on call to pick up these things or I need more staff time directed time after school to make phone calls uh, I think you definitely need need the time to do things ultimately if you don't have enough time to do it the system isn't going to work or the system you've put in place if staff don't have enough time then it doesn't work and um, so you definitely need the time to manage that behavior and it's really important the follow-up is really really key i think there's a couple of things you can do um to to get that time give staff time from somewhere else so for us when we moved from doing the restorative practice conversations um, we had a lot of those going on they weren't being done properly and what we didn't have was the communication with parents about behavior now we do we use class charts at our school so parents can log on and they can see um the, the behaviors but that's not the same as speaking to to another person about what actually happened restorative practices were taking between half an hour and 45 minutes particularly if you'd logged a couple of students to fully have those conversations to make sure we could get the students out of detention they they were becoming really disruptive uh, so what we said to staff is actually that half an hour we want to give that back to you but what I do want you to do anyone you've logged we do want you to have a phone call home and that phone call shouldn't last more than five minutes sometimes they will but they shouldn't last more than five minutes so we are talking about giving you back um you know that half an hour and asking you instead to maybe make one or two phone calls uh you know st staff generally speaking at my school aren't making more than that amount of logs in a day anyway uh, making those phone calls and actually giving the parent opportunity to be able to support us further at home so so get the time from somewhere to allow staff to effectively do that also make sure your system itself is really really quick and easy to log it should be a one click process if it isn't if they have if there's lots and lots of different pro parts in order to get through then it's going to be too complicated um, and staff won't have enough time and then it won't work and then your staff will disengage and the minute your staff starts to disengage with the system then you're going to your behavioral issues will get worse because the, the, they just won't follow up um, in terms of slt and on call again if they haven't got enough time if there's too much going on you need to look at why that's happening what is the workload on their start on that on the staff that is causing that to happen um so we have a system our on call system is only run by pastoral um staff and the senior leadership team so it's our, our heads of year our heads of key stage and senior leadership 
um, we are the only ones who do the on-call. So we don't ask that in terms of any of our subject leaders. Um, we don't ask that um, for, for other elements of kind of leadership roles. But what we make sure is that we have allocated that time based on where there are gaps in a timetable that are not going to drain somebody. So if they've got four lessons in a day, we haven't made that fifth lesson an on-call because actually that's where they're going to get pulled away. Something else is going to happen. But have a backup if you can. And I know this isn't available in all schools, but we have within our pastoral team, all of our heads of year have raising achievement officers that are non-teaching members of staff that support them. Um, and we know if for some reason we cannot, absolutely cannot, uh, do an on-call because there is you know, a meeting with the local authority that you can't do at any other time and you didn't have con control over when it was booked, we will ask those members of staff to support. And they are the ones who actually control on-call notifications anyway. So they see them come through first. Um, so they are more than happy to, to support us with that. Um, so I think that needs to be a key part in terms of SLT supporting staff um, and we, we touched earlier about senior leadership sometimes being an issue if they're in a rush um, my one, number one rule is assume if a staff is used on call they have used every other intervention they've got before they have sent that child out so don't rush and put the child back in the classroom um, in fact we have a rule at our school if you're on call that child isn't going back into your classroom they will probably get swapped to another room um, but once you if you rush that child back in and you've not had a proper conversation, then actually you're just undermining your staff. They're not going to feel supportive. The students are going to think, brilliant, I got 20 minutes out of that lesson. Uh, I got to go back in and now I can carry on behaving the way I was behaving anyway and I'll just get sent out again and the same thing will happen again. So if you are on call, you have to recognise that you, yes, you can try and do other things, but if those on calls come through, that needs to be your number one priority fantastic you know and i think and and that's why i think these these conversations that we're having now this is this is things that i i don't think i've heard discussed before i've certainly not seen maybe you know in in books or in in literature as much as and and there will be people out there but behavior is always a hot, a hot topic for people people are always thinking about it and getting beyond that that idea of you know this is a rule and we will implement it is so important so i think this is a really powerful conversation i i'm conscious we're going to pop to the news but when we come back there's a couple of questions and one of those that i want to pick up on on particularly is i know you've already mentioned sen but just you know how we marry that consistency to the uniqueness of some of our children so are you happy to stick around hannah and just speak a little bit more on the other side of yeah, the news absolutely fantastic now remember if you are listening live you can text any of those questions in to the podbean app you can tweet us at tt radio 2022 we are live so that you can interact and you can ask the questions yourselves but we will see you just on the other side of the news this episode of teachers talk radio has been made possible with support from witherslack group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, 
you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Scotsman reports on strike action by Scottish teachers planned to take place in the coming weeks. Scottish Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville has said there is no separate pot of money to fund an improved pay deal for school staff and that any improved pay offer would involve diverting cash from other areas. Strike action was announced after recent ballots and will be the first such action for almost 40 years. School staff are due to strike on November the 24th after members of Scotland's largest teaching union overwhelmingly voted in favour of the industrial action. The EIS union said 96% of its members backed the action via a ballot, which saw a turnout of 71%. The most recent offer of a 5% pay rise was rejected three months ago. Ms Somerville told the Scotsman that she was absolutely determined to try to reward staff with a pay rise closer to the 10% being sought by unions but warned it would lead to difficult decisions in other areas. In Wales, school children have been given the green light to support their national team in the group game against Iran. The Welsh Government has agreed to let schools decide how to manage the timetables during the game, which kicks off at 10am on Friday the 25th of November. The team is in the nation's first World Cup for 64 years. The FA of Wales has organised a football Friday for the day of the Iran game. Around 1,100 schools throughout the country are preparing for a full day of football activity. The Welsh FA has created packs including bunting, footballs, flags and posters to mark the event. Skills sessions, inter-school matches and football festivals are also planned for either side of the Iran game. Pupils in both primary and secondary schools are planning to take part in the events. FE Week focuses on the efforts of colleges across the country that have been instrumental in helping refugees from the war in Ukraine build a home away from home in the UK. Since the war began, around 7 million citizens of Ukraine have left their homes and almost 150,000 have found sanctuary in the UK. The country's colleges have dedicated their efforts to laying on ESOL courses to help refugees master English as well as other learning opportunities designed to help Ukrainians settle in. Whilst numbers vary from area to area, some colleges have signed more than 100 Ukrainian students onto courses. And not just for ESOL. At least 1,200 students are on A-level or other post-GCSE courses. But it's not just about teaching English. College staff have also worked to provide other practical support such as free bus passes, lunch vouchers and loaned laptops. The full story can be found on the FE Week website. Finally, a new resource for secondary school aged pupils has been launched to encourage young people to consider a career in the veterinary professions. The British Veterinary Association has endorsed the Vet Team in a Box resource produced by University of Liverpool. The resource is designed in line with the Key Stage 3 National Curriculum 
and help students participate in scenarios which aim to demystify the veterinary professions and remove perceived barriers to joining. The resource will be available later this month. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week let's talk gadgets and tech that helps us teach, but also might be something to hint at for a gift in the near future. Before I start, I'd like to define tech as anything that's been made that makes a difference to how we interact with the world. Usually for the better. A pencil or scissors, for example, are classed as tech in my definition. That being said, let's look at what a few internet searches have brought up as must-have tech for teachers. Mini whiteboards, a favourite of Nathan Ginn, have got to be super useful. Things to watch though is pens running out, do you also need a cloth or a board rubber, and primary teachers don't let the kids keep them in the trays with the books, they make them look messy and get ink all over them. Interactive screens, are you team interactive or could you have had a big TV and spent the rest on other things? I love interactivity but my subject lends itself to it. Are you simply presenting on an overpriced screen? Things to check out are open source interactive software that's compatible with different devices. Sometimes you can be locked in by software. Having something you can use on almost any board might be for you, especially if your school has a mixed estate of kit and as it's open source, it will be free. The presentation clicker is a classic. Things to watch for is losing it, leaving the USB dongle behind and also ensuring you don't use the built-in class 3 laser to blind the class. Does anyone really use a laser pointer. A webcam, a topic I've discussed in the past, a decent webcam nowadays doesn't need to be expensive and can do as much as a visualizer. Think purpose and audience, then think desk space and the number of cables needed. What about simpler gadgets? Feedback stamps. With these, I'd just be certain the way feedback is given isn't going to change before you buy them to get value for money from the stamp. Ninja pens. Is it a ruler? Is it a pen? No, it's a spirit level and also a flat and cross-headed screwdriver. It looks cool, but if you get a cheap one, don't expect to be able to unscrew anything unless what you're unscrewing is made from cheese. As always, I'd love to hear about your favourite teaching tech. Let us know at TT Radio 2022. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn, on Teachers Talk Radio. Now tonight, we are talking about uh, what are the barriers to implementing a behaviour policy at your school. We're joined by Hannah Lloyd, who's a secondary school assistant head teacher for behaviour and safeguarding. Now, welcome back, Hannah. Hello. Hello, yep. Um, I can't believe Steve Woods had a dig at me in the two-minute tech. I've not, I've, I, 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 I get a little, like a little shout out there, but there was something in the news that I wanted to ask a question about because I am in Wales, as, as people will, will, will have noticed from the jingle and my, my, my intros and everything. And, and we have, we are having a time off timetable in secondary school, this is, uh, that I'm in, having time off timetable to watch the football. Now, can I ask, are, are you having time off uh, to, to watch the football during the school day? We have not made any plans 
um, at the moment to have time off to watch the football. I, I, you know, I, I find it interesting. Obviously, it's been a lot longer since Wales lasted well at football, but there has been a bit of talk, you know, about this bit of discussion online. So I, I, I would be interested if there are people listening and, and they are or aren't or feel strongly about it, feel free to, to drop that in. But here in Wales, yep, we're doing it. We're, we're going to be watching football because, do you know what? We don't get to celebrate that often. Um, now, we are talking about behaviour. And, and I said just before the news there, I wanted to ask this question about um, children who are unique. You know, we've talked about the Education Endowment Fund's Improving Behaviour in Schools Guidance Report that said consistency is key. Um, uh, but can we have personalisation as well as consistency? Can those two things um, exist within a policy without kind of it, it falling apart? Um, that, that's my question for you, Hannah. I, I think the answer to that is yes, um, but I think it has to be done properly. So the key thing is to not lower your expectations for those students. They should be held to the same high expectations as everybody else. What you actually need to make sure you are doing as a school is putting support in for that student to allow them to meet their expectations. Um, so if I think about one of my year seven classes, I have four students in that class who are entitled to movement breaks. Um, they have those movement breaks to stop them from disrupting the lesson. So they are sat in positions in the classroom where they can do that without disrupting. Ideally, uh, I will give them opportunities like handing out books, handing out glue sticks to, to allow them to get up out of their chairs if they need to, if I can see them getting fidgety and agitated. Now that doesn't take anything away from the behaviour policy. It doesn't lower the expectations of those students. They are still expected to be there on time, to work really hard, to make sure they're respecting other students. None of those rules have actually changed, but we have a support network support in place to allow them to better meet those expectations so I think it has to be really clear why it's been adjusted and it has to be for a specific reason um, I think if you do it that way other students don't see it as inconsistent they understand that those students are receiving or have an element of that because they have a need that allows them to do that. Even if you are not explicitly saying that, students can be, in my experience, very understanding with things like that. And they don't see it as unfair. They see it as the fact that you've allowed something for that student to help them to not disrupt their learning. Um, and, you know, I wonder, and, 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 and you know, this is, this is possibly that, that, toughest question of all around this and, and that communication of it of um where that level of need is because i you know i really agree with what you said there about this idea of you know the support is to lift them up not to to lower the bar you know we, that that is what we are aiming to do um with it being consistent then and, and having unique children in our school and children who, you know, have specific needs around around specific behaviours, uh, communicating that with, with staff is important. But but one of the hardest things, I think, for, for people to see is do you communicate that with students or is there a way to sort of communicate with students that, you know, this is for one child, but it doesn't mean that, that you, another, you know, you as a different child can do that also. Yeah, because that strikes me as something being, being an incredibly difficult sort of negotiation to make. I think it, it depends that you kind of have to judge the context of your school there and how students will respond to that. Um, I think for me, in, in certainly in the classes that I teach and in the school that I work at the moment, 
you do need to explain it to the students but you what you don't want to do is pinpoint specific students for them because you don't want to create um targets for for students to to aim at so uh, I have at the beginning when I when I took this year seven class and I had these students with the movement breaks, for example, I just said to the entire class, if you know you are entitled to movement breaks, um, I have sat you in a position where hopefully you will find that less disruptive. You are welcome to get up out of your chair if you need to. Now, I know who those students are. So I'm going to know if another student is trying to take that on themselves and I can have a conversation one to one with them to just explain to them they don't have that entitlement. But I would also then ask them, do you feel like that is something you need? Do we need to go and speak to, to our SENCO and, and have a look at that? Um, I think it does depend what what accommodation you've put in place as well. So the things like uh, <coughs> fiddle toys, blue tack, et cetera, um, if you've chosen that as a, as a system to support your students. In my experience, other students don't tend to think that that entitles them to have those things. They understand that that's for specific students. So I think you don't need to make everything explicit. I think you can do it on a more general level, but I think it is good to communicate to children um, that not everyone is the same and they need to understand that not, not just in terms of behaviour, but on every level. Um, and therefore, for some people, accommodations need to be put in place and, and school is fantastic um now you know i i i think a lot of people will um recognize you know um that maybe there are there are issues around the system i think a lot of people will listen to this and think you know what i want to i want to go and i want to unpick maybe um something a little bit more or start looking at what we're doing because they're, they're, they're maybe not happy quite with how things are working based on some of the things you said and it, some of it has really inspired me to, to look with fresh eyes when i go back into work tomorrow and, and and look at how some of these things have done and what support we've put in for whether that be staff or students around the implementation of these behaviors things but if someone is sat there thinking you know maybe in in in, in a, a a doldrum they haven't even got you know the capacity they just know that it's not working do you know what behavior we haven't got the system right where do you suggest they start where is a good starting point if you know you've got a maybe an issue you know you want to improve it where would you start looking or what would you start doing to to get that journey off the ground i think it depends what level you're at um, I think if you are a teacher or a, a middle leader the first thing you need to, to do is is highlight it with your senior leadership team um, but plan that don't go to them and complain don't make it sound like everything is imploding what you need to say is this isn't working I've gathered this experience from from talking to other members of staff can you please allow us to look at other systems? Can we look at how we are, are managing this? So you're not saying it's not working, I'm not going to give you a solution. You're saying actually it's not working, but we can we look at it? Can we please review it? Um, and I think if you are a senior leader then, you, or, or if you're the senior leader saying that it's not working, the key thing is talk to the staff. Your staff are the people who are using that on the ground day in, day out. Um, particularly when you're going to senior leadership, you are going to be teaching less. You will not have as much experience of those five lesson days where it becomes absolutely draining if behavior is not good enough. So you need to talk to the staff that are doing that. So do things like form working groups to have a look at the behavior policy. What does work? What is good? What's not working? Why is it not working? Recognize the first session of those groups will be extremely negative um, because you have potentially got five or six people in a room who don't think the behaviour policy is working and they will need to offload and that is okay. But what needs to be really clear with that working group is when you offload, 
we are then going to look at what are the solutions. So have a session of negativity and then ban it moving forward. You're not allowed to now be negative. Now we are solution focused. So we've identified what the problems are. What are we going to do about it? How can we change it? And then the other one, and I think this is often forgotten, talk to the students. Make sure the students are able to have their voice in how the system works. Do you think this is actually a deterrent? And more importantly, is this a good reward? Would you be motivated by this because you want to get this? Um, so talk to the students, get their ideas in terms of what it looks like and also their experience. Do they think there's a lot of low level disruption? Do they feel safe in school? Look at where those issues are in terms of identifying what needs to go into your behaviour policy and what, going back to those choosing the rules, what are your priorities? Involve the students in that because they're really key in terms of how that comes across in the actual school environment. Really powerful suggestions there, and I yeah, I agree a hundred percent with those. And I think you know if you are listening, there is some really key stuff, and I'm going to have to listen back myself. I've really enjoyed this. Now, no, what I want to do is I want to finish off. Uh, you know, we're trying to lighten the mood, but first we we dip slightly, and then I promise we are coming back up to end on a positive. Um, but you know, as a, as a someone who is you know responsible for behaviour in a school, you know, what are the most sort of frustrating things? about having a role like that within a school? What are the frustrating things about dealing with behaviour in schools? Uh, I think I, I, <laughs> reflect, I think there are two main things, and they are both to do with adults, not children. Um, <laughs> the, the children are not the issue, really. I think staff who uh, are at either end of the spectrum of inconsistency, so either they are doing their own thing, they don't pay attention to the policy at all, and they are undermining everything you're doing, they're extremely frustrating. And if you strip it right back, the ones they are most frustrating for are the teachers who are new to teaching. Because if I, having been in teaching for a while and having managed behaviour and, and you know, looks at all the research, et cetera, if I teach a lesson after that member of staff, I'll be able to get the behaviour back on track. If I'm a trainee or an ECT and I've got these routines that I've been told and this is how the behaviour policy looks and I'm following that member of staff, they've undermined me automatically. My students are not coming to my lesson knowing that they will get the same treatment. Um, equally, at the other end, adults who don't recognise, and particularly teachers who don't recognise when they are escalating a situation. Um, and I have a favourite phrase that I use, which is an escalated adult cannot de-escalate an escalated child. Know what your triggers are. Lots of staff won't know them, or they won't be able to recognise them. And in a happy world, you wouldn't know them because maybe a child hasn't triggered you yet and then you don't know what they are. Um, when you probably have found this when you work in pastoral, your triggers are probably a lot harder to reach because you are a lot more uh, tolerant in terms of some of the behaviours that head your way. But I certainly recognised mine a few years ago now, a child threw something at me um, and I suddenly, I saw red and straight away I thought to myself, I need to remove myself from this situation. I can no longer responsibly be the adult in this situation because I am too angry now to deal with this and I think staff need to know and recognise when they can no longer handle that situation and pass it to another member of staff and that that is not seen as weakness it is not seen as weakness. it is a strength to be able to say this is no longer productive with me dealing with it I'm going to ask somebody else to deal with it and step in um, the other thing for me and it's really a bigger society issue it's not something we can necessarily solve as, as individual schools but unsupportive parents um, I quite often have conversations with parents 
where I say this is the behaviour policy, you sent your child to the school knowing this is the behaviour policy, there are other schools available if you don't want your child to attend this school with this behaviour policy. Um, uh, luckily for me, as we have changed things um, and as we have implemented the policies and communicated all of these to parents, we actually have a lot more parents on side now. Um, which is really, really helpful. But unsupportive parents are, is also a very frustrating thing when you're trying to manage and deal with behaviour. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I would agree with all of those as being frustrating. I think it's really interesting that that, that kind of mention about the triggers. Uh, you know, I, uh, for those listening who maybe haven't come across it before, I work in alternative provision. And, and so there are a number of triggering behaviours for adults within it. And and I, I say entirely, we, we talk openly and we talk honestly about as staff members, which situations we are good at and which ones we are not good at because there is I have never met anyone who is who is good across the board at everything and yeah you know I openly will say a child blanking me is is my is my is is the worst thing and whatever it is in my psyche means that I am not able to effectively deal with those I can be spat at I can be you know I can be sworn at I can be anything um down that sort of extreme but, but someone ignoring me and continuing to do what they do, for some reason, that I can't. But by sharing that with staff and talking to staff about that, I don't necessarily have to overcome my own psychological problems on it. But as a team, we can better support the child around it. And so, yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I was going to go something a bit more lighter, like, you know, the, the most frustrating thing for me about dealing with behavioural incidents or, or, or implementing behaviour systems in any way is when I, I, I think I've done something and I've done really well and a kid has taken their coat off and then I hear that 10 metres down the corridor they, they, someone else has told them to take their coat off as well and and those silly little wins when I think I've won and then I haven't won and then I think I've done well and I haven't. Now we are going to end on a more positive uplifting. I know I transitioned this into down so that we can come back up the other side and end on a really happy note because you're going in day in and day out and you sound still incredibly passionate about your role and 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 doing well so there must be some real positives about um you know being responsible for behavior within a school so what is it that that, that, that gives you that buzz then what are the positives of being involved in pastoral i think the positives um the, there's two sides to it the, the first is to do with the staff knowing seeing that you've been able to to put systems in place and work with staff that improves their well-being because they feel safe they feel like they can manage behavior and um, they feel like they have the support in order to do that is really really key um when i very first started at school speaking to to one of the heads of year and i supported him in a parent meeting um, and as i say they'd been through this kind of lots of issues with, with leadership and he said it's been a really long time since i feel like somebody had my back uh, and that's really, really important. You have to have, even when they're wrong, you have to support your staff and then have a conversation with them one-to-one -one if they're wrong and, and support them and give that training need. Uh, but but being able to see that, seeing staff happier because behaviour is better is an amazing buzz. Um, and then I think the relationships with the students and, and that changes when I first went in um, to, to the school and, and implemented lots of change. I was the scary behaviour lady. Uh, that is how the students referred to me. There were several students going to their pastoral teams and uh, mouthing off and saying unpleasant things about me. And that's fine. That doesn't bother me at all because I knew that was going to happen. What has then happened over time 
is that has changed and students see the reason and I've taught them the reasons that we have the rules and we've talked a lot about how to, I've then taught them how to meet those expectations rather than just telling them what they are. And so the relationships with students is an amazing part of pastoral care and being able to build those relationships uh, uh, is, is absolutely what keeps me going in terms of without a doubt when you are having the worst day and something has gone horribly wrong a student will make you laugh a student will make you smile uh, and that is a really key part I think that, that keeps me going. Fantastic. Um, now, um, thank you so much for, for coming on. It has honestly been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and it has given me so many um, sort of light bulb moments to, to, to kind of take away and take back into my own school. And um, I'm sure for some of our listeners and people listening back, because um, I will say all of our shows are available as podcasts on Spotify, on iTunes, on, on Amazon, and even at our website at ttradio.org slash listen back. You can type into the search by there. And if you were to type in the word pastoral or the word behavior it would come up with all of the shows i think there's over a thousand on there of um uh, shows where they might um come up with with something that would interest you but if you want to continue this conversation you can of course message me at lesson copy on on twitter or of course tt radio 2022 now um hannah is it happy for people to to reach out to you if they have questions about things that you've said how how would they uh how would they get in contact yeah absolutely um my uh messages are always open on twitter so i'm at assistant head uk um so more than happy for for people to reach out uh, and ask for advice i'm actually in conversation with a couple of people already um who who want to overhaul their behavior systems and they've been asking a few questions so yeah more than happy for people to to ask questions and i will do what i can to fantastic and i'm really jealous of you. you got in early with your twitter handle didn't you were you were you in in twitter early to get that that's a really good twitter handle I don't actually think I was. I don't, I think that's absolutely fluke. I didn't used to be. When I very first started out, I was at Maths Teacher UK. I must have got in early to get that one. That, that is early. It's <laughs> a really good, like everyone, like, I, yeah, like everyone now has had to go with like quite complicated ones because all of the good Twitter handles were taken. Um, yeah, you must have gotten really early. That is a really, really uh, classy uh, Twitter handle you've got now. Now, I should say to anyone listening in, if you are listening live, tonight at nine o'clock, Jeff Pedley is on. He's talking about classroom crazes uh, and playground crazes, should I say. So it's going to be a bit more lighthearted. If you want to join in some of that, you know, whether it be pogs or yo-yos or fidget spinners or even skipping I guess any of those classroom crazes that have driven you wild or you enjoyed a school he'll be sharing his thoughts and his memories with all of the listeners about class playground crazes in schools um now Hannah I will say uh, you know from here in Wales we say nostar and that's just good night so um thank you so much again and and nostar um to you and to you too Thank you. And as I say, um, we will catch you next time, everyone, uh, on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in, talk it out, and Nostar, good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.